You will please open in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Our passage tonight is Romans, chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to use the Pew Bible in front of you. You can find our passage for tonight on page 944 of our Black Pew Bible. We are continuing our series on the uh, book of Romans and come now tonight to that great passage that uh, probably is the favorite passage of many of you in all the Bible. And so uh, it's a great honor, privilege, and uh, humbling to be able to preach this tonight, but to pray the Lord would apply this to our hearts, that we would grow in our faith and look to Him. Let's look now to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your day we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As far the reading of God's word, would you please pray with me? Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would stamp your living word on our hearts, that we would come life to life to you tonight. Strengthen our faith, and if any be among us who are dead in their sins, I ask, O oh Lord, by your spirit, that you would turn them, give them life in Christ. Bless us now as we consider this passage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our, um, as many of you know, I, I teach a, a Sunday school class every Sunday morning. It's our young adult Sunday school class. And what we've been uh, looking at recently, and including this morning, is what it, how do we live as Christians in a post-Christian age? I think it's an important topic because we have this sense that perhaps it's coming that we are entering into a post-Christian age. Perhaps we are already there. And we've enjoyed in the past few generations privileges of living in a society that upholds at least a Christian worldview of sorts, or at least a Christian sense of morality, and it seems to be changing around us. 
What do we do? It's confusing to us when the world around us has changed so rapidly. Well, we even see this, or I've noticed this uh, worry or anxiety among Christians even this past week. I, I, I read some back and forth online about uh, debates about what we should do as Christians in light of recent <clears throat> tragic events. And one commentator, commenter, probably not commentator, but commenter, wrote this, said, save your prayers, we need to save our prayers and actually do something. Save our prayers and do something. And some of this is coming from, from pastors, not <clears throat> not um, someone who just kind of has a general interest in Christianity, but, but pastors who are arguing about whether or not it's of any use to pray at all when we look at the big problems that we face in our society today. And just noticing that in light of our class in Sunday school and thinking about this passage this week, I began to wonder if, if any of the Christians in Rome had some of the same fears, worries, uh, the same anxieties, you know, in light of their own suffering and persecution, how are we to, to respond and face the world that is against us? With the Apostle Paul, how is he going to minister to these, these precious, precious sheep what is he, how is he going to exhort them? Is he going to tell them, listen, Christians in Rome, you need to stop praying and start acting. How is Paul going to minister to this church in the midst of their suffering, of their persecution that they are or are going to endure? What's interesting is as we come to this passage here, we come to a place where Paul is really primed to say such a thing. But that's not what he says. Rather, his exhortation to them, as we just read in these verses, is to lean more into the knowledge of Christ. Not to turn outward from the church and start doing something, but, but to lean into what you know is true of Jesus Christ. See, it's in the context of suffering that, that the Apostle Paul ministers to God's people by drawing out for them the implications of the rich theology of Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that that seems to be the focus of Scripture when God's people are facing perplexing times. We see that in our verses. Paul here, pastors, ministers to this group of people, these Christians in Rome, by asking a series of questions. Sometimes pastors will do that when they conclude a sermon. will ask a series of questions for you to think about. And here we see five questions where Paul is drawing out the implications of the theology of Jesus Christ. And so tonight we're going to look at each of these questions in turn. And our first question is in verse 31. Look with me at verse 31. He asks this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who 
can be against us. What then shall we say to these things? You read this verse and you might ask, what things, Paul? What things are you talking about? Are you talking about verses 29 and 30, the verses right before here? Are you talking about verse 18, about the sufferings of our present time not being worth comparing to the glory that is ours to come? It could be either one of those things, but I think here that we can step back a bit and take in a bit of a larger view and consider that what Paul is asking them, he says, what should we say to these things? What things? He might be talking about all that he's written so far in the letter to the Romans. All that he has laid out from chapter 1 all the way here to this point in chapter 8. And what has Paul been talking about? What has he been writing about? We have a summary verse in Romans 3 and 21. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see what Paul has been doing in the letter to the Romans, up until this point in Romans 8.31, is he has been laying out the full landscape of the gospel before the Christian believers in Rome. He's laid out this landscape of the gospel, and now he says to the Roman Christians, what do you say to these things? In the midst of your suffering and perplexities and and your troubles and your difficulties. Now that you've had the gospel presented to you and reminded to you. Here's what you say. Yes, though I face suffering and yes, I know that the government is out to get me and Nero and, and so on. That it's going to be really hard and we're going to really suffer. But you've been telling me about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I can say then, if God is for me, who can be against me? If God is for me, who can be against me? In other words, Paul is asking this. Have you grasped the gospel? Have you really understood In the the pit of your heart, what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Do you know what it means? What God has done for you in Jesus Christ. It means if God is for you, we're speaking about not some God who's just out there and can't be known and you sort of guess what He thinks and wants, but He's a God who has chosen you. In Jesus Christ. Has mercy on you, though you are a sinner deserving the judgment of hell. And yet He looks at you in Christ and He justifies you by His grace. And He adopts you into His family and will one day glorify you. And has promised that He will work all things together for your good. The God who has, who cannot be thwarted. His purposes cannot be thwarted. If, if God is for you, then who can be against you? 
Do you know the answer to that question? Nobody. Nobody can be against you. Do you understand that? Have you, have you comprehended that? That if, if you belong to Jesus Christ, that is true of you. Tonight, that is true of you. Whatever is coming your way this week, that is true of you. If you are in Jesus Christ. That is true of these, these Christians who are under the terrifying shadow of Rome. If God is for you, no one can be against you. Of course, there can be people who make plans against you, who scheme against you. But ultimately, Paul says, no one can be against you because God is for you. I was thinking about this verse. I was thinking, you know, maybe my problem, maybe my problem in this life, the struggles that I have in my Christian life, come down to, to, to failing to really grasp this. Failing to really understand what the gospel means for me. To let the pressures of this life overwhelm me. Because I fail to really understand and remember, God, you have chosen me in Christ. You are for me. I don't have to be afraid of anything in this world. There's a, a song that is kind of on somewhat repeat in our house. It's, a, it's on a children's album. And you know those songs are really catchy. And they get stuck in your head even though they're for children and you're 40 years old and singing them to yourself when nobody else is around. And the good thing is this particular song is simply singing Bible verses, which is great. It's one of my favorites. Isaiah 40, 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. It's a good verse to have stuck in your head, going over and over again. Because I need to remember who God is. He does not grow tired or weary. He is the everlasting God. And if His purposes aren't going to be thwarted by Babylon or Rome or any other societal pressure that we face, then I can be confident in the Lord. Or have we forgotten? Have you forgotten that the Lord is the everlasting God. What do we say to this? If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you could say, if God is for me, who? Who can be against me? Because who can stand against God? Sometimes we need a refreshing reminder of the greatness of God. How great is God? Perhaps we should spend more time dwelling on this than maybe we do. But when we realize that He is God who He is, and when we realize that He is for us, then we need not to worry or be anxious. 
Because we can be reminded, no matter what I face tomorrow, there's no better place to be than in the hands of God in Jesus Christ. What then shall we say to these things? And Paul, though, doesn't leave it here. In verse 32, he goes on to a second question. He asks another one. Verse 32, he said, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, trying to think back what it would have been like to have been a Christian in Rome in the first century A.D. You can go back and read history books and learn about the persecutions that they went through. And I, and I think about the heroes of the faith who went through that and, and I marvel. But I also have wondered, were there others around them, perhaps, who began to think and maybe even ask the question out loud, why is this happening to us? Does God know this is happening to us? Does God really care? Because if He knows, why isn't He doing something? Has He abandoned us? I wonder that because I wonder if you've ever asked that question yourself. Have you ever felt that way? But Paul asks the question, He who did not spare His own Son gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? We ask that question, is God abandoned us? And you think, well, what has God given me? What has God given me? He's given me His absolute best. His Son, Jesus Christ. And if God has given you His most precious love from eternity, don't you think He would still care for you? That if He's given His best, His greatest, don't you think that He will still give you all things? By asking this question, the Apostle Paul is ministering to us by taking us back to the cross. And he's showing us how profoundly generous God is. Because when you see God's love on the cross, where the Son of God became the object of God's wrath, so that we who are children of wrath would become the sons of God... When we remember that, how could we possibly doubt God's love for us even in this time? No matter how difficult my circumstances are now. How can we ever think God is stingy towards me? Have you ever felt that way? God, why are you being so stingy to me? Perhaps you look around and see others. Why do they have so much and I have so little? When you start to think of that, remember the cross. God is not stingy toward you. But instead, by Jesus' work on the cross, God will give you everything you need. Everything you need to live a holy and godly life. God gives you everything. And so we see how important it is to go back to the cross. To, to root out the bitterness in our hearts when we look at our circumstances, we look at others and we wonder, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening in my time? God's generous. He's given me everything 
I need. God will not hold any good thing from you. Which brings us to a third question, verse 33. Paul asks, in verse 33, Who shall shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You may say, Okay, God is great, and if he's for me, who can stand against me? Sure. Yes, God has given me everything I need for a godly and holy life, but but what about those areas in my life where people are pointing out failures? You know, I live in a world that is perhaps seeking to bring accusations against me. Again, think back to the first century Christians in Rome, and you can imagine all the charges that were brought against them, the charges of atheism, for instance, and would be thrown into the ring to be eaten by the the lions or or whatever. Think of the charges the world may make against you, that perhaps you're a bigot and unloving, which is the opposite of those who are in Christ. You're also probably aware of the charges that the devil himself brings. Satan is known as the great accuser. Okay, God may be for me, but I feel this weight of of accusation against me. Again, Paul asks the question, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. You know, one of the things that will happen for most of us Maybe not most of us, but many of us. Somebody brings an accusation against you, or accusation against me. You get defensive. That you don't understand what I've been going through. You don't know what it was like to be me in that time. Or what you're saying is not true. We get so defensive that we end up making ourselves look like we're perfect. I've never done anything wrong. But notice... This verse is not telling us that the charges being brought against you are necessarily false. It may be the case that when charges are brought against you, that they are true. And we need to be humble enough to say, you know, I am a sinner. I have sinned. So let us not kid ourselves and think that all the charges brought against you are never true. So what do I do? If they are true, and I know it in my heart. Well, even when the charges are true, he tells us here, for the one who is in Christ, it is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. Every charge that is laid against you has been taken up by Jesus Christ himself. And for all the sins that you have done, the Son of God has paid the full price. And he has clothed you in his own righteousness. And God looks at you, and he doesn't scowl at you, Hold up his nose and say, you sinner, what are you doing in my presence? He accepts you. 
He accepts you in Jesus Christ because God cleanses the believer by the righteousness of Christ. Jesus does the work of justifying you, making you right before God. And God accepts you in Christ. You see, the believer in Jesus Christ is righteous. Righteous before God. And that can be hard to believe. That can be hard to believe. Sometimes I wonder, God, can this be true? And then you look at his word. God tells you, Ben, I have made it so. In Christ, I have made it so. Because in Jesus, we have a Savior who is just and is the justifier of the ungodly. So who will bring a charge against God's elect? You don't have to live under the weight of guilt for your sin. Of course, you repent of sin. It doesn't mean you never sin again. But before God, you have been been justified before God. You are a free person in Christ. The gospel makes you free. So Paul builds on this with another question, verse 34. We've seen it's God who justifies. It's not only others who bring Accusations. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Think about our own hearts. When our own hearts condemn us as well. Because when we look in the mirror and we take an honest look inside and consider our own inconsistencies, our own failures. We, we see how I have, have sinned and I've dishonored the Savior Himself. And our hearts condemn us. What does the Apostle, Paul, uh, Apostle John say? When our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. So Paul goes on in verse 34. Who is to condemn us? And he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Again, when our hearts condemn us, Paul brings us back to the cross. He says to look at Jesus who has paid the full penalty for our sins. And he was vindicated. He was vindicated by his resurrection and has ascended now, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and he stands for us and assures us that the price for our sin has been paid in full. Who can condemn us? No one? Nothing. Because Christ has paid in full the penalty for everyone whom God has chosen. For everyone who is in Christ. Which brings us now to our final question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one can condemn. It is God who justifies. If God is for me, who can stand against me? Is there anything then that can separate me from this? Get me out of the protection of God's mercy and grace? 
I think of, again, the church in Rome. They would have been familiar with things that we're probably not so familiar with. Things like persecution. Things like famine. Or nakedness. You all look very good tonight. Danger. Or the sword. These are things that they would have been familiar with that perhaps we don't fully grasp today. Or any of those things. Things that could take us out of God's love. You know, Psalm 44 would have been a verse that would have struck home to many of the Christians there. For your sake, you see verse 36, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's saying that that describes your life as a Christian. You're like a sheep being led to the slaughterhouse to be killed. That was the reality of the Christians in Rome. But even in that, Paul writes to them. And he says, who can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Verses 37 through 39 tell us, none of these things. None of these things. Death, life, angels, demons, things in this world, things that will happen. Powers, height, authority, Caesar, depths, despair, nothing in creation, nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. And instead, what Paul says here is actually that the opposite is true for the believer. Not only will nothing separate you from the love of Christ, no matter how difficult and how hard and how dangerous your life is in this moment, But in verse 37 he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. What an amazing idea. It's one thing to be a conqueror. But to be more than a conqueror. What is that even? Super conqueror. I haven't just conquered. I I am greater than that. You know, to be killed because you're a Christian and the world hates Christ, that looks like defeat, doesn't it? We hear about the martyrs, those who are killed in in other places, simply because they're Christians, that, that looks like defeat. But Paul reminds us here, even that is not so. Verse 37, it says, in all of these things, in all of these things, In every experience of of hostility, adversity, every experience of suffering, what is God doing? He's bringing us nearer and nearer to Himself. Closer and closer to His love than we could ever imagine. We're super conquerors. Yes, the world may kill you, but what have you gained? You've gained the love of God, which is eternal. Not even death can take this away. So when someone tells you, you've done enough praying, it's time to get to work. What should you do, Christian? Go back to the cross. Draw near to the Savior. 
grasp the gospel in your own hearts. Know it for yourself and make it known to others that when God loves his own in Christ, he loves them with an everlasting love, with a love that is invincible into eternity. Paul is sure. Neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height or depth, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God. Now why is that? He says, at the end of verse 39, because it is a love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are loved with an everlasting love. Do you understand what God has done for you in Jesus Christ? Even the weakest, most anxious believer who is in Christ has the full love of God and it will not cease ever. Because the Father's love for His Son will not cease ever. Do you believe that? That's God's truth. If God is for us, who can be against us? We need to fill our soul with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we look at our lives and what surrounds us with fear, fill our hearts with the bread of life. We live in a world that desires the death of the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself tells us this. And yet we can also be sure that when the world passes away, the church of Jesus Christ will be standing in glory. The day will come when Christ will return and every eye will look to him. And what will happen? Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Are you in Christ tonight? Are you in Christ tonight? Have you grasped the gospel? If you love him, have you understood this? Have you filled your heart with this truth? It's not nothing to pray. We actually see drawing near to God in Christ is everything. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us to see the glorious power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are great and we are weak. We thank you for your love. It is undeserved, unmerited, but you give it anyway in Jesus Christ. So strengthen our faith, oh Lord. Or draw us to faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.